0: Please turn in your Bibles to this morning's scripture, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. If you would like to follow along using a pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 573. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: My heart is filled with great joy this morning. What a privilege it is to be here this Sunday as your new pastor, to proclaim God's truth to you, and to look ahead to the days of doing that, Sunday after Sunday. It is an immense and overwhelming privilege and blessing, and I don't take a minute of it for granted. Thank you for entrusting me to this position. Pray for me, and may the Lord be pleased. To prosper his kingdom among us in the days ahead. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this tremendous passage before us today that is filled with so much hope. And so, God, would you be pleased now to open our ears, to open our hearts, to open our eyes, that we might see the Lord Jesus and that we might be transformed. Into his likeness. We ask in his name. Amen. Hope is one of the virtues that we focus on in the Advent season. We lit the candle of hope this morning as we do every year. And hope from a human and worldly perspective is little more than wishful thinking perhaps. I mean after all yesterday, Around the country, there were many hopeful people as it pertains to football, whether the American version or the version around the world, with the World Cup going on as well. There are many students that are very hopeful here at the end of the semester that they will be given grace and, in, and mercy. And there are children who have already begun with their hope of what Christmas Day is going to look like for them under their tree. It's unfortunate, I think, though, that our understanding of hope in that sense plays in our minds even when we come to think about the hope that we have in God and in Christ the Messiah. And I believe that that perspective of hope will rob us of the joy and peace that the Lord wants for us as we consider hope today. So, as we begin our series in Isaiah, let's do a little bit of background information that I hope will set the series up as well before we dive into the text. In Isaiah's day, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms there was the southern kingdom that comprised the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and the northern kingdom that was made up of the remaining ten tribes. The kings and leaders of Israel were in rebellion to God in both kingdoms. They were leading both the northern and the southern kingdom into apostasy and into moral bankruptcy. There were some moments of turning back to God, such as when Hezekiah would pray and God would deliver him from the Assyrian invasion led by Sennacherib. But in the end, both Israel and Judah would be judged for their sin, conquered By foreign empires and taken away into captivity. Well, God raised up Isaiah during this period of time to pronounce this judgment on the people. His was a difficult ministry, to say the least. In Isaiah 6, we read about his call from God and and the message that God gave him for the people. It wasn't a popular message. It wasn't even designed to draw the people of Isaiah's day back to God through repentance. Listen to God's words to Isaiah in chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And I, Isaiah, heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Wow. God had been very patient with his people for generations. And they continued to rebel against him. Their time was up. Judgment was coming, and there was nothing they could do about it. I might dare say that even if they wanted to do something about it without the Lord's intervention, they couldn't do anything about it. This was a hard message for Isaiah to preach. Imagine he had just had an amazing mountaintop experience in his vision of the glory of God in the temple. With God's train filling that temple, angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. The thresholds of the temple being shaken, smoke. He experienced his own salvation as God forgave his sin. And then Isaiah answers the question when God says, who will go for us? He said, here I am, Lord, send me. But instead of sending Isaiah with a message calling for repentance and turning back to God as other prophets had done previously, Isaiah's message was one of impending judgment that would further harden the hearts of his countrymen. He didn't make any friends with this message. He was hated for telling the people the truth, and eventually tradition tells us that he was martyred by being put in a hollowed-out tree and sawn in two. Yikes! Yikes! A message of doom and gloom that was not received. Where's the feel good, grace filled, tolerant God of the modern day church? We like that God a lot better, don't we? Maybe you're thinking, well, this is going to be a delightful Advent series. (laughs) It's true. God is love, God is also justice. And yes, God is filled with grace. He is also filled with righteous anger towards sin. We can't carve him up into a God of our own making, keeping what we like and getting rid of the parts that we don't like. We must accept him for who he is and how he presents himself to us in his word, not how we imagine him to be or want him to be. But in the middle of this Painful message that Isaiah had to deliver. We see the amazing grace of God. While the message of the prophet was judgment on his people, it is also filled with undeserved hope and mercy, a glimpse of a new dawn, a future hope. God would still fulfill his promise of salvation through the anointed one, through the Messiah. And while Judah could find temporal hope in the prophecy that they would be restored to the land one day after the captivity in Babylon, the greatest hope for Israel and the greatest hope for us is found in the future reign of David's heir to the throne, God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this glorious hope, the dawn of redemption, dawn's first light, that we are going to explore together in the coming weeks. At the end of chapter 8, we read some disheartening words that God's people will experience distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they'll be thrust into thick darkness. But praise the Lord for chapter 9. Because there in verse 1 it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Zebulun and Naphtali were the northern lands of Israel, covering the area just west and southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And they were the very first part of the country to fall to the Assyrian invasion. Like a dark cloud, the Assyrians began their invasion and they rolled over this area, leaving a path of destruction and devastation on their way to Jerusalem. Sadness would grip the people as they realized judgment had come and it was unstoppable. But even in the middle of this great sadness, Isaiah prophesies that the gloom, the darkness, would one day be lifted. He gave the people a ray of sunshine, And gladness in their despair, speaking of a future time in God's plan. And we see that latter time spoken of and fulfilled in Matthew chapter 4. Where it says, now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And here we have this direct quote from Isaiah. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them has light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gift of repentance had returned. This region where Jesus began his ministry was looked down on even in his day. And it was the place where God's judgment had first come to Israel in Isaiah's day. Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy by bringing the glory of his kingdom first to the place of God's initial judgment. An amazing demonstration of grace and mercy towards this rebellious people. And that kingdom would expand from there throughout Israel, throughout the world to include the Gentiles, to include the nations of the world. And it would mean the end of sadness for God's people, the end of the gloom, the end of being disheartened. Jesus' coming would also mean the end of darkness. Darkness is the default condition in our universe, isn't it? Light doesn't exist apart from a source. Without a source for light, there's darkness. That's the way it is. This is true spiritually speaking too, isn't it? We're born into sin and darkness, and it's only when the light of Christ shines in our hearts that we have the hope of new life and light. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. There's that idea of the people that walked in darkness. They will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Our sinful condition causes us to walk in darkness. But Jesus says, Follow me. Follow me, and you will no longer be in the dark, but will instead have the light of life. We can't produce this spiritual light on our own in our hearts. It must be given to us by God as a gift. Jesus' advent, his coming into the world and into our lives is the end of darkness. When he saves us from our sin, the light of his presence dwells in our hearts. It doesn't mean that we'll never sin again, but it does mean that we won't live in the darkness of sin. And looking to the future promise We see in the book of Revelation of the Apostle John that we are told that in the new heaven and earth there will be no more need for a sun or a moon because there will be no night there. There will only be light and it will rain forever. But if there isn't a sun, how will there be light? Well, John's revelation tells us the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God. God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk. There's that idea again. No longer walking in darkness, but walking in the light of life. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. The nations that once walked in darkness will walk in the glory of God. The light of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus himself, will be that light. The end of darkness has come, and the dawn of hope and the coming of the Messiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Verse 3 speaks of the end of need when Christ comes, the end of wants, of lack, of poverty. Here the prophet speaks of multiplying the nation and increasing its joy. God's people needed this promise to cling to in the coming days of captivity and judgment when all would seem to be lost. Isaiah shows the fullness of this prosperity, by speaking in extremes, speaking of an abundant harvest that comes from God blessing his creation and the abundance of the spoils of victory from a conquering hero. He will bless his people with unimaginable blessings. Not only are we called to glorify God with our existence as our First catechism question says, but we're also called to enjoy him forever in his abundance to us. The spiritual blessings that are ours today in Jesus Christ are something I fear we barely tap into. And the blessings to come in his eternal kingdom are beyond our wildest imagination. The dawn of hope means the end of need. With the transition word for in verse 4 of our text, we have the first reason given for the dawn of hope and this time of rejoicing. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Well these words would likely bring a couple of things to mind for an Israelite. They would think back to their bondage and captivity in Egypt. That was a central point of their whole history. They're, they sang about it in their songs, they discussed it with their children. It was a seminal, central moment. And they understood what it meant to be yoked under bondage of a taskmaster as slaves in that environment. And God broke them free of that. But then he also speaks of the day of Midian. Of course, the greater burden on Israel's back was the oppression and weight of its sin against God. It was from their sin and rebellion that they needed true rescue. And Isaiah says that the, that rescue would come as in the days of Midian. This is a reference to Gideon, And his victory over the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. You may remember the story, but if not, I'll kind of just briefly give some some highlights here. I think one of the central points of that story had to do with the numbers, the soldiers that Gideon had at his disposal to defeat the Midianites. So it started out not so great, but not horrible. Gideon had 32,000 men up and against about 130,000 of the Midianites. But God told Gideon that that was too many. And so it was reduced to 22,000. Well, for God, that was still too many Israelite warriors, and so it was reduced to 10,000 against the 130,000 warriors of Midian. Still too many. Finally, God reduced it down to 300 soldiers against 130,000 Midianite warriors. And by following God's instructions, those 300 soldiers routed the Midian army. Why did God make Gideon reduce his numbers? What was the point of that? Well, God tells us. It was so that the Israelites would not be able to take any credit For that victory. God would be the only possible explanation. Israel needed to understand at this time as well. That for their oppression and enslavement to sin to end. It would require an intervention by God himself as in the day of Midian. A miracle that they couldn't take any credit for. God had brought them to the end of themselves. And his Messiah was the only way forward to the end of oppression of sin and death. And so it is for us. We cannot fight the battle against sin and death in our own strength and through our works. We must trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Only he can provide salvation for us. This dawn of hope that Isaiah saw would also mean the end of war. In verse 5 we read that even the boots and garments worn by the soldiers are used as fuel for the fire. The uniform, much less the weapons of war, are no longer useful or needed. Because peace has come. Full victory has been attained. Nothing is left to conquer. There are no more enemies to pursue. What a beautiful message to a people who were being conquered and subdued in war at this time. A day was coming when war would only be a memory. We can certainly take great comfort, too, in our world, filled with war and rumors of war, that Jesus brings an end to war when he comes. And not only the wars between nations, but the war between humanity and God. Jesus' coming provides reconciliation to God for rebellious men and women like us. This dawn of hope that Isaiah speaks of, the end of sadness, the end of darkness, the end of need, the end of oppression, and the end of war, it all hinges on the sure reality of verses 6 and 7. These beautiful, familiar, comforting words. For to us, a child is born... Isaiah declares that a child is born. A flesh and blood human. Born of a woman. One of us. A representative before God for us. And the sure promise is also made that a son is given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God himself has given us his son. This new king that comes is fully human, born of a woman, and fully God, God's very son. He is, as the prophet declared earlier in the book, Emmanuel, God with us. Humanity's ongoing cry for an honorable and worthy monarch who can finally rule in perfect justice and righteousness, will be answered. For this child of Mary, this son of God, has broad shoulders that can bear the weight of governing the universe in perfection. This child and son is Jesus Christ, the one announced to the shepherds by the angels, the one born in a stable in a backwater town, the one visited by the wise men. He will be worthy of names that no other can claim. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This dawn of hope that Isaiah allows us to see in the coming of the Christ means the end of the end. Jesus' rule and government has no boundaries. It will increase until it envelops every square inch of the universe. There will be no competing forces. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And additionally, the promise to David that his heir will rule forever is accomplished in the reign of Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His is an eternal, peaceful kingdom. From this time forth and forevermore, there aren't any successors to the throne of David once Jesus is seated on the throne. There is no end to his reign. And there's no more goodbyes, no more death, no more loss the end of the end and the beginning of forever. Maybe you're thinking about your own circumstances or looking around at our society and world and, and thinking, yeah, this is all good in theory. And I even have the faith to believe that one day... It will be true. But it's not the present reality. I see a lot of hopelessness around me. And I don't even have a lot of hope for the world or for myself, for that matter. I would tell you that I get that. Because I feel that way too sometimes. Just turn on the TV for a few minutes. And while Jesus came to end sadness, darkness, need, oppression, war, we still live in the in-between, don't we? These things are still with us. Living in the middle means that the dawn of hope has come, but its full reality is yet to be completed. We live in that already and, and not yet. But I want us to consider that living in this tension is actually an enormous blessing. The Old Testament prophets didn't have the luxury of seeing any of the fulfillment of the coming of Messiah. We, however, are right smack in the middle of Messiah's reign and his kingdom. And so we have a different perspective on the promises. We can see it. Hope has dawned, and we're basking in its radiant light, even this morning. But perhaps our issue is that we don't understand what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is a little bit like reading or watching an epic good versus evil story. Think Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, something like that. If it's a great story, you really never tire of watching it or reading it. You can read it and watch it again and again and still enjoy it. Even though you know the ending, you know what happens. But because of that, you have a confident hope in the outcome. You can sneer at Darth Sidious muttering under your breath, you just wait. You might be getting ahead right now but in the end you're going to get your just desserts or you can read about or watch Frodo climbing the mountain and wanting to give up and the anguish that he's experiencing you can say come on Frodo you can do this you're going to be back in the shire dancing and singing and laughing with your friends again very soon hang in there you can do this but you still feel that tension and the emotions of the characters you still sympathize with them and cheer them on. But since you know what happens, you watch it unfold differently than you did the first time. Instead of being worried about how things are going to turn out for the good guys and being afraid of the bad guys that they might win, you have a confident hope in the outcome. You can, folks, these are just fictional stories that I'm telling you about. And all good stories reflect the one true story of history and reality. And in that story, the one that we're living in right now, we have a sure and unshakable hope. The full assurances of the promises of God that it's all going to turn out like he said it will. And it's going to be better than we can ever imagine not despite the darkness and the sadness in the world, but because of it. For God is using all of the darkness and the sadness in the world to bring about the glory of his forever kingdom. And all of these promises that we've looked at today, they're sealed with the final statement of the passage. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. when the dawn of hope seems far away. Know this, Christian. God is passionate about his son's kingdom. He is zealous to see it through to the end. And he is described here as Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of the armies of heaven. There is nothing he cannot do, and there is nothing that can change or thwart his will. And all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. The light is rising, and we have the assurance that the promises will be fulfilled. We can live out our lives in the confidence of a sure thing. Christian, your hope's not based in wishful thinking, It isn't one possibility among a thousand. It isn't based on really good Vegas odds. Your hope is rooted in the absolute eternal word of God. And this sure hope is not far off. It is here now. Perhaps not fully realized in the world that we live in. But it is right now in your spiritual reality if you belong to him. If we live in hopelessness and fear, it's likely due to one of two things. Either we don't know God and we aren't in relationship with his son, the Lord Jesus. And if that's where you find yourself, I would, I would plead with you this morning. Call on him for salvation right now. Seek him while you still can and while he can be found. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The second likely reason that you might be living a life filled with hopelessness and despair is that you're looking to yourself or someone or something else to fulfill the hope that only Jesus can satisfy. He is the only sure foundation, the solid rock on which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Looking to yourself will cause you to be frozen and paralyzed in fear and depression. When we look to Jesus, who has won the day, we're freed up to live our lives for his glory alone. What a privilege. What a blessing that is. We can look to the here and now of building Christ's kingdom on earth. For he has called us to make disciples to that end. And at the same time, we must look ahead to the glory and consummation of that kingdom at the beginning of eternity that is still yet to come. It's not just about the sweet by and by. It's about the here and now. The kingdom has come, and it exists here wherever the church is, wherever you are. If you know this Messiah as Lord and Savior, then the greatest gift of Christmas The spirit of Jesus himself lives in your heart. He is the hope of the world. And we have the privilege and responsibility as his people of sharing the good news of his coming. Giving the hope of joy to those that are in sadness. The hope of light to those in the darkness. The hope of abundance to those that are in need the hope of freedom to those under sin's oppression, the hope of peace to those that are at war with God, and the hope of eternity to those who are at the end of themselves. This is our calling, friends. This is the message to a lost and dark world. So don't walk around groaning in defeat about the way the world is. Be the salt and light that Jesus has called us to be, and find your hope in him alone. And St. Andrews, as we move forward together in unity in the reality of dawn's first light, may the hope of this Advent season fill us, encourage us, and motivate us to reach our world with the hope of the gospel. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, what a hope is ours. Father, we should leave this place dancing out of here this morning. Knowing that you are victorious and that we are victorious in you. And so Lord, help us to live in the light of the gospel, in the light of the hope of Jesus Christ this Advent season. And may our lights shine in a way that others might see our good works would be drawn to you as a result of that light and that they, too, would know this glorious hope that is ours. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.